want to uh, start, off, start off with a, uh, a fatherhood story. My, um, I've been talking to my wife, and I was telling her that uh, every once in a while, people will come to me and say, you know, how's the baby sleeping? Are you guys getting enough sleep? Is the baby sleeping through the night? You know, I'm saying, you know what? I have to honestly admit, we're blessed because the baby is just like, we go to bed at night and the baby goes to sleep and then we wake up in the morning and the baby's awake. Man, we've been getting some good night's sleep. My, my wife was like, are you kidding me? She was like, I'm up every four hours with her feeding her. And I'm like, oh. She was like, did you, did you tell them that you're delusional and then I'm living in reality? I was like, no, I didn't tell them that. But isn't it funny how you can have the same exact situation and look at it from two different perspectives? And I want you to hold on to that because we're going to look at that today. But I've been reading. I'm a, I'm a huge history person. And I love, like, church history, Roman history. And I've been reading a book by a guy named Eusebius. I don't know if any of you have heard of him before. He's a Roman historian. He's a Christian. And he talks a lot about the early church. And really, really talks about is what happened with the disciples all the way through, like, the early And it's just amazing to hear what he talks about. He talks about persecution in the church. And he says that there were Roman emperors who were persecuting the church, but not every Roman emperor was trying to persecute the church. Some of them left them alone. But there was persecution going on. And in the midst of that persecution, he talks about the faithfulness of those early Christians, that many of them went to their death not turning their back on Christ and and, in whom they've um, professed their faith. But there were actually some who did. They wanted them to worship idols. And what they did was they would actually bow down to idols. And then there was a big controversy in the churches for those who had turned their back. Do they have to be now rebaptized again to bring them back? So there was a big controversy back then for that. There was heresies back then. That every time you turned around, somebody was coming up with some new thing about Christ or that they were the, the second coming or that they had some divine revelation, that there was constant heresies in the church. But in the midst of all this that he goes through, he shows that the church continued to grow. And you look at it and you're like, wow, how is this possible? Why? Because it's God that's building the church. God is the one at work that's building the church. And that's what we've been looking at in this series, Multiply and Divide. It's not us doing it, it's God doing it through us. Remember several weeks ago when we started, we looked and we saw Paul, we saw Barnabas, and we saw them being set apart, and Ezra talked about developing a hunger for God. And then they go out, and they're led by the Spirit to go out and begin preaching the gospel, telling people the good news, that there was a boldness in going out and preaching the gospel. And that there was joy in preaching the gospel and joy in that boldness even when you begin to face persecution for what you say and what you believe. And then when we go out and we preach the gospel that we don't steal God's glory, that we're doing it to glorify him. And in preaching the gospel and becoming like Christ, you're going to suffer. Christ suffered. Paul suffered, and that we're going to suffer too. That the message that we go out and preach about salvation is in faith in Christ alone, period. Remember, we talked about the N-word. And then Brian preached about listen up, which means is that salvation really is for everyone. Why? Because that's what the Word of God says. They went back to the Bible, and they preached that. 
And then last week we saw that we have a freedom in Christ. When we are believers, we have a freedom. We shouldn't use it as an occasion to have others stumble and even ourselves. We've been walking through chapters 13 through 15 in Acts. And today we get to the final part in our sermon series. Man, it is amazing to see what God is doing. The baptisms is amazing in and of itself. How many baptisms do we have? We've seen new people every week coming through our doors. We've seen new ministries started. We've seen new leaders step up. The book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit working. Christ working through us with the Holy Spirit and working through the church. And what we're called to do as believers and as those in the church is to work together and to fellowship together. Reminds me of the first and second commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That the church is where we called, we're called to work together for the gospel. But what happens when man is involved in this? It can be good and it can also be bad. It's one of the things that Eusebius actually says in his book in the early church history. One of the things that he goes on to say is as they had more freedom and as the persecutions were dying down, that the arguments in the church began to go up. People were using words against one another in the church. And I love the words of a friend of C.S. Lewis. His name is author Sheldon Vonneken. This is what he says. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Yes. I went going to go one step further with that and say one of the best things about Christianity is God uses sinful people. And one of the worst things about Christianity is that God uses sinful people. Trust me. There's many times you guys make me crazy. I'm kidding. I love you guys. But he's, God is using sinful people. And what I want to look at today in this scripture is how God can restore and use us even in the midst of our failures. I want us to walk away today to be in awe of God and what he's doing in and through his church and in and through us. And we're going to look at Acts today. So let's start off. Why don't we pray before we get started? And we're going to look at Acts. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word today, Lord. You have so much to say through your word, Father. And what is that you want us to hear, God? And not just to hear, but what would you have us do, Father? Pray that you would just clear our minds and our hearts to hear from you, Lord, and you would speak to each person individually, including myself, God, your word today, Father. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts 15, 36 through 41. Acts 15. 36 through 41. And for those who don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles, but we also have it up on the screen too. So Acts 15, 36 through 41 says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city 
where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And I wanted to start off to give you sort of a background of what's going on right here. So you see in verse 36, what's happening is Paul wants to go back to visit the churches from the first missionary trip. Paul has a desire. and He's got two things, really. The one thing is he wants people to know Christ. That's what he's going. He's going, he's preaching the gospel, and he's preaching Christ. But he also wants to go back and help people grow in Christ. That he has a heart for helping to go and to strengthen and encourage people. And that's one of the things that we are really called to do, is to strengthen and encourage. Not just church leaders, everyone. That we're called to walk alongside people and help them to know Christ and help them to grow in Christ too. Where you are, you can go and you can encourage people. Fellowship and discipleship was important for Paul. It's one of the reasons why we've always shown that fellowship, I'm sorry, the discipleship wheel that we've gone, we've shown, is that your growth as a Christian doesn't stop with just yourself as a young child, as a Christian. We want everyone to reach full maturity. And how does that happen? We go and we disciple and we walk alongside other people too. And that's what he wants to do. So his idea is to go back to these early churches, not leave them alone. Let's go back and strengthen and encourage them by revisiting them. Now, if you remember last week, and the week before that, we had what they called doctrinal tensions. There was tensions in the church because there were some people who said, okay, you have your faith in Christ, but you've got to do one other thing. You've got to get circumcised too. And they just had a Jerusalem council to talk about that issue and address that issue. So we've seen doctrinal tensions earlier in the church. Well, now we reach another tension. And this time it's between Paul and between Barnabas. And there's a sharp disagreement over John called Mark. The Greek word is paroxymos. It means a violent explosion. I think sometimes when we read it in the scripture, it doesn't give it due to really what was happening between Paul and Barnabas. The reason is why. Well, here is the background. In Acts 13, they're on their first missionary journey, and John Mark turns around and goes home. And the scripture doesn't say why. Was he afraid? Was he homesick? Was he opposed to going and preaching to the Gentiles? We don't quite know why he turns around. But you can understand. Here are the viewpoints from each perspective. From Paul's perspective, he's saying, I'm not taking him with us. He left us the first time and he didn't do the work. And Barnabas' perspective is, let's bring him You know, this is somebody that is salvageable, and he's trying to show grace to him. We don't know who's right, because the scripture doesn't say who's right and who's wrong. But you can see it from both perspectives. From Paul's perspective, Paul is like, look, we're going out and we're doing work, and if he turns around and he leaves us and he's not committed, he could put all of our lives in danger. And from Barnabas' perspective, he's saying this guy is salvageable. We can show him grace and want to give him a second chance. 
But if anything, what it shows is, it shows their human side. Oftentimes when we read about Paul, we read about these early church believers, we tend to think of them as a little different from ourselves. But what it shows is their human side. And it shows that divisions can occur even in the body of Christ. Why? Because God is using fallen people. And it's their disagreement that has now separated them from being one missionary journey to two. Paul and Silas go back to the churches in Galatia and Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. The question is, will the mission of Jesus now crash and burn because of disagreements? And that leads us to our first point is this. God can ordain gospel growth even through man's sinfulness, man's humanity, even through brokenness and broken fellowship, that our sinfulness and our disagreements still can't stop his plan. You've seen it with Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. For those of you that know um, Mars Hill Church in the great Northwest with Mark Driscoll and the disagreements that he had and how the churches broke up, and now they're all on their own. We've seen it happen with that. And I think about, too, even my own experience in my old church that I used to go to, and I wasn't directly involved in this, but I remember going to a meeting one night and literally seeing people fighting each other. Not physically fighting, but the words that were spoken back and forth. And I think about It's one of the reasons that drove me to come to Riverside, was so I was like seeing that happen. And it makes me think back to what Paul says in Romans when he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God can work through our conflict. He can use that to continue to grow his church. But as theologian John Stott says, But this example of God's providence may not be used as an excuse for Christian quarreling. That even though God can still use that, we are still responsible for our part. Our pride, our anger, we're still held accountable for that. But nothing, nothing can catch God off guard. We as Christians, we're called to live in unity in the church. And one of the beautiful things about Christianity is we in Christianity, we have hope. Even in the midst of conflict, we still have hope because we serve an all-powerful and all-knowing God. Nothing we do and even quarreling can catch God off guard. He can still use that. So God can ordain that, and that leads to point number two, which is God can redeem and restore through it. He can restore situations, and he can restore people. Because we serve a God is about restoring and redeeming people. What God is doing through this conflict right here with Paul and Barnabas is he's furthering his kingdom, but he's also changing in the process Paul and he's changing Mark. And that's God's grace. That's God's love. That he doesn't leave us where we are. That he changes people in the midst of those situations. 
The question is, how do we respond when faced with conflict in the church? Do we show grace to others? Do we have a purpose of trying to restore others? And do we remember that God is still in charge in the midst of whatever happens? And when you look at this right here, it begins to point you to a larger picture of how God works. You know, it's Martin Luther, the German theologian, that talks about something called right-handed power and left-handed power. And right-handed power is direct action and force. Left-handed power is power that looks like weakness and it's intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. And there's an Episcopal priest by the name of Robert Fire Capon who borrows from this in his book, The Parables of the Kingdom. And he says, we expect God to show up and take direct right-handed action on our behalf. But it's often the case that God lets us experience his work in left-handed ways that seem weak, ineffective, and not very to the point. You see, that's how God works. And that is the gospel message. You see, what God was doing was God was using the brokenness of man, the sinfulness of man, and man's flesh to deliver his own son to the cross. That's what sent Jesus to the cross. And it's through that, what was God doing is he was restoring and redeeming man to himself. That's the gospel story. Our sin still can't stop his plan. That's what Scottish theologian James Stewart says. God didn't conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. It was the very thing that God used to bring forth salvation. Man's sinfulness, man's broken relationship with himself is what sent Jesus to the cross to die on the cross because God was restoring and redeeming us and our relationship with him through that. That is the gospel. And what God continues to do today, he continues to use sinners to go and to build his kingdom. Even when we fail, even when we have disagreements, that God can still restore us. You know, I think back to my experience with my old church, and I realize now that there is no perfect church. That I may have left because I was searching for a perfect church, and even though there was a sharp disagreement going on there, I realize there is no perfect church. Trust me, I work every day with Brian and Ezra. I know this. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But there isn't a perfect church. But you know what? Even in the midst of that, God still brought me to Riverside. And God is still working through that other church, even in the midst of sharp disagreement. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? Well, number one, we have to live in grace. What does that mean? First and foremost is salvation is through faith, by God's grace, that we give our lives to Christ, that we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior because that's God's gift to us, what he's done. And he's done that through faith, that we accept the gift of salvation, but then even after we do, it's not a one-time thing, is that we consistently come before God and come before his throne of grace every day, multiple times a day, and we repent 
We turn from our sin and we turn toward him. Just like Frandy's little boy that came up, we need to go to God like that every day. And we need to turn to him. So we need to live in grace every single day. So not only do we need to live in grace, but we need to show grace to other people too. We need to live every day and show grace to others who fail. Do you know what Barnabas' name? Barnabas is son, means son of encouragement. Because that's what Barnabas did with his cousin Mark. He showed him encouragement. We need to live every day like Christ and to build and encourage one another when there are disputes and when there are disagreements too, when others fail. We need to realize, the second thing is that God can do anything. God can use our sinfulness. God can use our failure even to continue growing the church and our disagreements but that we're still called to live in unity with one another. And we need to realize also that even when we fail, that we're still useful for his work. And we can return to him in grace. You see what God was doing through this? was He was continuing to grow his church, but in the process, he was still restoring Mark and Paul. You see, John Mark's Hebrew name was Yohanan which means Yahweh has shown grace. And what you see in Mark's life later on is the fruit of Barnabas pouring into him and restoring him also. God showed his grace toward Mark because Mark went on to, to write the gospel of Mark. And in Paul's life, he goes on later and writes a letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. And you see, even in the midst of this disagreement, God continued to grow his church and he restores Mark and he also does it with Paul too because Paul sees what Mark has done and Mark is doing. That's grace. That's God's grace and that's the same grace that's shown to us. Remember we asked the question before, is will the mission of Jesus crash and burn because of disagreements? And we've been walking through this series called Multiply and Divide. And we understand that God is the one that's at work building his kingdom. And he's using us to do it. It's through suffering. It's through tension. It's through disagreements. And it's through our sin that God continues to build his church. And I want to leave you with these words as we end our sermon series today. It's from a poem called Flame of God by Christian missionary Amy Carmichael. And she says this. She says, from prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O captain, free, Thy soldier who would follow thee. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings. Not thus are spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay. The hope no disappointments tire, 
the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. And we ask and we pray to the Lord our Savior to free us to live for him, to free us from trying to live the easy life, to free us from everything that dims the gospel to us. Give us a passion, Lord, for you and your work. Use us to do your work, Lord. We serve a God who can do everything through any situation. And we serve a God who restores, restores and redeems. That's the gospel message. And that's what we live every day. And that's what we share with others. Let us give our lives to him. Let us join him in the work that he's doing. And let us point the world to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it amazes me often, God, that you know everything, Lord. There's nothing that we do that catches you off guard. There's nothing that you can't restore and redeem, Father. And you did it through the cross, Lord. Even those who, who nailed Jesus to the cross, that thought they had pinned your back to the wall, Lord, you were actually using that to bring forth salvation, God. We just thank you, Father. Help us to live every day in your grace, Lord. Help us to come to you every day, Lord, and admit our wrongdoings, admit our failure, Lord, and to be restored and redeemed by you, Father God. Use us to do your work, Lord. Use us to go out and to preach the gospel to others, Father. And we just thank you, Lord, and we just praise you, Father, for all that you do. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.